Greetings, family, and welcome to our weekly St. Luke's podcast, Your Week with St. Luke's. I'm Pastor Jeremy, and we are yet in the Lenten season and studying the Gospel of Mark. We're also continuing our Lenten sermon series, Dying to Live, where we look at the things that we must die to on a daily basis in order to fully live into and embrace the new life we celebrate at Easter. And we've been going chapter by chapter to identify what those things are and how we're called to let go of them and to die to them. This week we are in chapter 13 and we're considering what it means to die to comfort. Uh, This will be a great time to grab your Bible so we can jump right in. Uh, We're going to be looking at the entire 13th chapter of Mark starting with verse 1 of course and ending with verse 37. Uh, We're going to be dividing the chapter up into three sections. The first uh, we'll simply call the intro. Uh, Here we see a bit of exposition and scene setting. Uh, the first section uh, will cover verses 1 through 4, uh, and I'll be using the CEB or the Common English Bible. Uh, so let's read together. Starting in verse 1, Jesus left the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show uh, that all these things are about to come to an end? Uh, If you've been following along, you know that uh, ever since Jesus entered Jerusalem, he has been going back day after day, challenging and frustrating the religious leaders at the temple. Uh, This scene takes place directly after Jesus and his disciples leave the temple for the last time before he is crucified. Uh, And it all begins with one disciple being awe-stricken with how beautiful the temple was. We may read this and say, how could a follower of Jesus be so taken with the appearance of of the temple after saying, all Jesus had done to show corruption within it, or simply considering the events of chapter 12, which Pastor Melissa took us through last week, uh, where we learned to die to facade and deprioritize appearance uh, and focus more attention on the fruit that a person or a thing bears. I think we may find a bit of grace for this disciple uh, when we come to realize that the temple in Jerusalem at this time was a literal marvel of architectural achievement and the largest there had ever been. Tacticus, a Roman historian, described the temple as a mountain of white marble adorned in gold. Uh, Exegetical specialist Robert A. Bryant helps us imagine its grandeur, saying, Its enormous stones mystified many, and the surrounding courtyards, uh, colonnaded uh, courts, grand porches and balconies, uh, covered walkways and monumental stairs. Heron, uh, the great builder, built it to impress the wealthiest and most powerful rulers of the day, and he succeeded. And so thinking of this great temple that served not only as the center of Jewish religious life, but community and life in general, uh, the beauty of it, the importance and sacredness of it. uh, Can you imagine how shocking it was when Jesus looked at Peter, James, John and Andrew and told them that uh, it would all be destroyed, that not even one of these enormous white stones adorned in gold will be left standing on top of another. 
Verse 3 tells us that uh, Jesus and these four were having this conversation on the Mount of Olives across uh, from the temple, which conjures imagery similar to that evoked by Pastor Jen's message on dying to worldly authority, the two gates, if you remember. If you missed it, you want to go back and check it out. Uh, but understandably, the disciples want to know when all this will happen, when the end will come. Uh, we Here we see the question posed that Jesus spends the rest of the chapter answering. We also see the disciples conflating or tangling two ideals here, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the end of all things, what some might refer to as the apocalypse, uh, apocalypse, a word that we'll come back to in a second. Jesus begins his answer and delineation between the two things in verse five, which begins the second uh, the second uh, of our two sections. The first was the introduction, which contained Jesus's prediction of the destruction of the temple and the disciples question. And this next session will cover uh, verses five all the way down to twenty seven. Uh, it's what some call the apocalyptic discourse. Uh, others call it the little apocalypse because it's found in this relatively short passage that shares language, tone, and theme with Daniel and Revelation, which are the two main sources of apocalyptic literature in the canon of scripture. But very quickly, I want to characterize apocalyptic literature for us. Uh, while we often associate the word uh, with the end of the world and zombies and dystopian future, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with any of that. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal or to have a revelation or refers to the fact that in this kind of writing, uh, God is usually depicted as uh, showing an individual what is going on in their world from an otherworldly or a divine perspective. Uh, this perspective is then recorded using poetic language, language and symbolism uh, that ancient readers would have easily understood. But when combined with literalists' reading of, of scripture, it's easy to kind of get this confused with uh, ideas about monstrous beasts rising from the sea and literal historical events of this sort. Uh, it's a kind of long passage, but let's read uh, Let's read starting at verse 5 and I'll stop us. Make sure to highlight or take notes on any verses, words, or phrases that jump out at you. Once again, starting at verse 5, uh, Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. People, uh, Many people will come in my name saying, I'm the one. They will deceive many people. When you hear of the wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen. But this isn't the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other and there will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginning of the sufferings associated with the end. Watch out for yourselves. People will hand you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me so that you can testify before them. First, the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations. When they haul you in and hand you over, don't be, uh, don't worry ahead of time about what you what to say or to, what to answer. Instead, say whatever is given to you at that moment. For uh, you aren't doing the speaking, but the Holy Spirit is. Brothers and sisters will hand each other over to death. A father will turn in his children. Children will rise against their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you because of my name. But whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. One of the things to keep in mind when reading this passage is that, uh, the last word, that it's the last word of instruction Jesus gives the disciples in the book of Mark. 
uh, where they had been drawn to Jesus with the instruction to follow him. The disciples were now being told to watch. The one they had uh, been called to follow, would, uh, since the one they had been called to follow would soon be out of sight. He then tells them what to watch for. False teachers saying that they come in the name of Jesus, wars uh, in various nations. Uh, when I was small, people would use these verses to instill fear in others to say that uh, they were signs of the end of the world. Uh, uh, but Jesus pauses in verse 7 to say the exact opposite. Jesus says, but don't be alarmed. Seeing these things do not signal the end of the age. There's a shift in verse 9 where Jesus begins to describe the things that his followers would experience. He lifts off that uh, they will be handed over to councils, beaten in synagogues, and tried before governors and kings. So let's think about that. Handed over, beaten, and tried. That sounds a lot like Jesus' passion and journey to the cross. But it also mirrors what the original readers of the book of Mark would have been experiencing as they spread what would have been, what have, what would have been a pretty new gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel writers here highlight the struggles of the community that he was writing to as he retells the story of Jesus' journey. Jesus goes on to say that family members of his followers would, uh, betray, uh, would betray them, again, mirroring Jesus' fate, or the, the, just, just the fact of being betrayed by those close to you uh, kind of mirrors the situation with Judas. And that brothers, sisters, parents, and even children would turn on them for, be, uh, uh, for bearing the name of Christ. He then offers a ray of hope in verse 13, saying that anyone who was willing to endure these things would be saved in the end. Let's look at this prediction so far from three angles. First, the perspective of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Hearing these words as Jesus spoke them, uh, they heard this as something that would po happen possibly in the far future. Oh, how their hearts must have been shaken hearing that this is what was in store for all who followed Jesus. Second, from the perspective of the early church to which the gospel was written uh, after the stories had been passed down for years and years. The early church who uh, once again were experiencing these things as they faithfully spread the gospel and began to evangelize the world. They would have read these things as current happenings to them. Oh, uh, how their hearts must have been anchored in hope, hearing that if they endured through their current struggles, they will be saved. And on top of that, that they could rely on the Holy Spirit to tell to, to fill them with courage and words as they were pressed uh, by others about the, the faith they held. And the third uh, perspective uh, from our perspective today, uh, we can look at this from historical, exegetical and hermeneutical perspectives, knowing that the true knowing the true struggle of the uh, that the early church faced, but also questioning what it means for us today. Uh, continuing on with the passage, starting in verse 14, it reads, uh, when you see the disgusting and destructive thing standing where it shouldn't be, the reader should know should understand this. Uh, then those in Judea must escape to the mountains. Those on the roof shouldn't come down or enter their house to grab anything. Those in the field shouldn't come back to grab their clothes. How terrible it will be at the time for women who are pregnant and for women who are nursing their children. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. In those days, there will be great suffering such as the world has never seen before and will never see again. If the Lord hadn't shortened that time, no one would be rescued. But for the sake of those chosen, uh, the ones whom God chose, he has cut the time short. Uh, 
then if someone says to you, look, here's Christ or there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will appear and they will offer signs and wonders in order to deceive, if possible, those whom God has chosen. But you watch out. I've told you everything ahead of time. Uh, verse 14 might read a little strange to us. It seems to randomly talk about a, destu a destructive uh, and disgusting thing present where it should not be, then says that the reader should understand what this is. But it's not really clear at all to us today unless we consider that the verse borrows language from the book of Daniel, uh, which I mentioned earlier, along with the book of Revelation, uh, are two main representations of apocalyptic literature in scripture. Specifically, it borrows language from Daniel uh, 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. Daniel eleven thirty one reads, His forces will come and make the sanctuary fortress impure. They will stop the daily sacrifice and set up a desolating monstrosity. It is thought that Daniel uses this term to describe the destruction of the temple at the hands of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. So it makes sense that the use of the term in Mark might point to the temple's destruction as a result of the Roman Jewish War in AD 70. Uh, verses 15 to 20, through 20 go on to describe atrocities the Jewish people would have suffered during this time. Uh, starting back at verse 24, we see a shift in Jesus's explanation. Remember, the disciples had tangled the question of when the, when the temple would be destroyed, and when all things would come to an end. Uh, Jesus just spent verses 5 through 23 explaining about the temple, but says clearly that these things mean uh, the destruction of the temple, but that the end is not yet. He now moves to his explanation of the end of the age. Once again, starting at verse 24, it reads, In those days, after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken. Uh, then they will see the human one coming in the clouds with great power and splendor. Then he will send the angels and gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the end of the earth and the end of heaven. The, uh, these verses tell of four uh, cataclysmic cosmic happenings, the sun becoming dark and the moon not offering light, stars falling from the sky and planet shaking. This communicates that uh, though wars and rumors of wars and other atrocities spoken of previously had thought to uh, precede the end, uh, that wouldn't be the case. The signs of the end will be on a whole other level. The cosmos themselves will be in flux. Uh, but the only true sign of the end of the age will be the coming of the Son of Man himself. But he, even he, didn't know when this would take place. We see this laid out in the concluding section of our study today, starting at verse 32, it reads. But nobody knows when that day or hour will come. Not the angels in heaven, not the sun, only the father knows. Watch out. Stay alert. You don't know when the time is coming. It is as if someone took a trip, left the household behind and put the servants in charge, giving each one a job to do and told the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know when the head of the household will come, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the early morning or at daybreak. Uh, but don't let him show up when you weren't expecting and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. And these are the final words of the chapter.
the final words of instruction from Jesus are to stay alert. These words follow Jesus's parable about a master who went away and left his servants in charge, inspecting his return, but never knowing exactly when he might come back. Jesus shares this with his disciples, knowing that the time when his life would be required of him and he'd have to leave them was at hand. Uh, but we are now the disciples who inherit the call to stay alert, watch and be vigilant. Uh, that, uh, that when an account uh, is required of us, that we might be found working and not asleep.